Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. Just a heads up about today's story. I've actually sat on this episode for many months, umming and ahhing as to whether I should release it. Because it is by far the most gruesome story that I will have relayed to date. However, in the end, I decided that it was a story that needed to be told, that needed to be heard. Because the issues raised in today's episode are still issues that plague us today, globally. So, I must forewarn you that today's story deals with crimes against children. It is definitely not appropriate for little ears. Listener discretion could not be more advised. So, with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to Tampa, Florida, in the United States, the economic center of Western Florida and on the very southern tip of the American Bible Belt. It was 1968, and eight-year-old Sherry Johnson lived with her mother, Doris, and her stepfather, David. Sherry was a smart, happy girl, known to always have a smile on her face. She loved to help her mother cook pies for the community, and she was a favorite amongst her school friends. One day, Sherry was playing in her room when her mother called her into the lounge. As she approached, she saw that her mother was talking to a man, a man she recognized well. It was none other than Bishop Stuart Emerson, a leading figure in their community and church, whom oversaw 36 churches in the state of Florida and Georgia an extremely imposing and influential man. She saw that at his feet there was a pink bicycle with a big red bow on it, and she was taken aback. Gifts were not permitted as part of their faith. But her mother encouraged her to accept the gift. She was told she was being rewarded for being such a good helper to her mother. So, hesitantly, Sherry moved forward to accept the contraband gift. The bishop opened his arms out to Sherry for her to embrace him. But Sherry held back. What's wrong with you? The bishop just gave you a gift. So, Sherry moved forward and allowed the bishop to embrace her. And as he laid his arms around her small frame, he pulled the young girl close to him, leant forward and whispered into her ear. Little did Sherry know that this encounter would go on to have ramifications that would hold her captive in a legal loophole for years to come and motivate Sherry into a battle that she is still fighting to this day. This is Darkside and I am your host, Suze. So... Why was Sherry confined for years? And what was the legal loophole that cost her her freedom? Hmm. Let's find out. My name is Sherry Yvonne Johnson. I got pregnant at the age of nine. I gave birth to my daughter at the age of 10. Was forced to marry him at the age of 11. When we got married, he was 20 and I was 11. Hmm. 
Today's story is horrific, as you have just heard a snippet of, and will continue to hear throughout the rest of this episode. But if I was just to relay Sherry's story to you without giving context, you'd all be scratching your heads, asking, why was this allowed to happen? Why didn't someone do something to stop this? And trust me, that is exactly what I thought when I first came across this story. So, in order to understand just how and why these horrific events were allowed to transpire, and why no one helped Sherry, why she was allowed to give birth at the age of nine and get married at eleven. Well, I need to give you some background information on the environment in which Sherry grew up. House of Faith Apostolic Christian Centre was a small white church that sat on top of a hill in Tampa, Florida. Its unimposing, run-down facade belied the extreme conditioning that was happening within its paint-peeled walls. For this sect of the Apostolic Faith was a particularly strict one. They did not believe in contraception and women weren't allowed to wear trousers or jewellery or cut their hair. They also weren't allowed to wear open-toed shoes or heels and had to wear skirts that came below their knees and sleeves that came below their elbows, even in the steaming hot Florida summers. No holidays or birthdays were celebrated as this was considered a celebration of pride. Watching TV or going to the movies was banned as this was seen as a form of idolatry. When parishioners dated, it had to be with a fellow church member and the date had to be chaperoned. Despite all these restrictions, the congregation was fiercely loyal to their faith, the church, and its emissaries. As their faith was so fully absorbing of every aspect of their lives, with little infiltration from the outside world, they were uneducated on anything other than what was being indoctrinated by their denomination. They were programmed that the church was God, and its representatives, its bishops, were essentially the living body of God. Their leaders were their deities, and they worshipped them like they worshipped God. Whilst they called themselves a sect of the apostolic faith, the deification of their leaders and the dogmatic strict belief system does appear to be tantamount to a cult. And, as we'll see in today's story, that almost cult-like mentality is what led to the horrific life that unfolded for Sherry. So, now you have an understanding of Sherry's background. So let's move on to Sherry's story. As I said in the intro, Sherry lived with her mother and stepfather. They resided in a little apartment at the back of the church. Sherry's parents had separated when she was very young, and while Sherry maintained a good relationship with her father, It was mostly conducted over the phone. Her father lived some distance away and was now married to a woman that did not like the fact that her husband came with a package deal. So Sherry was never allowed to visit their house. Sherry's mum, Doris, was a school teacher and she taught the children of other congregational members of the church. Doris had met David, her husband, 
and Sherry's stepfather through the church, as he was the assistant pastor. Both were heavily involved in the church, and David conducted sermons seven days a week, and Doris cooked 500 pies a week to sell to raise money for the church. As such, Sherry was very much left to her own devices. And up to the age of eight, Sherry's whole life had been centred around the church, their community, and this very cloistered indoctrination and lifestyle. But, at the age of eight, Sherry's whole world was about to turn upside down. It was early one morning, and Sherry was making her way to school. She was almost at school when she realised she'd left her lunch money at home. She stopped, realising that there wasn't enough time to go back and grab it and still make it to school on time. But she also could not bear the thought of not eating until after school. She was already hungry. Her aunt, Doris's sister, lived only a couple of blocks away, so she decided she'd go and ask her aunt for some lunch money. And so she headed over to the house and knocked on the door. The door opened, but instead of her aunt standing on the threshold, it was instead Bishop Stuart Emerson. He often stayed at her aunt's house when he was in town visiting their church, and Sherry quaked. The most revered man in their church, the living body of God, was stood literally feet from her, and she was awed and dumbstruck by his presence. As she stammered and asked for her aunt, saying that she needed some lunch money, the bishop smiled kindly at her, and told her that her aunt wasn't home, but he'd happily give her some money, if she'd like to come inside. He held the door wide, Sherry stepped inside, and the bishop slowly closed the door behind her. And what comes next needs a trigger warning. I've really deliberated how much information to include here. In my episodes, I don't tend to go into the graphic detail of the crimes, as I make the road to punishment and retribution the focus of the story, and not the crime. But in today's episode, there is just no getting away from the act of the crimes itself, as they are integral to understanding just what happened to a little girl and the travesty that was allowed to take place under a thin veil of respect, religion and community, and how the law failed her. So, okay, you've been warned. The bishop asked Sherry to follow him to the bedroom where he kept his cash, but when they got into the bedroom, he instructed her in a very authoritative tone to lie on the bed. Sherry was confused. She couldn't understand why he was asking her to do this. But she was only eight, and this was beyond her comprehension. And he was the adult and a respected member of their community. So she did as she was bade. She climbed onto the bed, lay her head against the pillow, and adjusted her clothing out of modesty. The bishop came over to her and pulled up her skirt. Sherry instinctively tried to pull her skirt down. This wasn't permitted in their church. A skirt could not rise above the knee. But the bishop forcibly moved her hand away. And as he did, he began to unbuckle his belt. 
And as she lay there, petrified, she felt a searing pain rip through her body, and as tears rolled down her cheeks, mingling with the bishop's cologne-infused sweat that was dripping onto her face. She kept asking God what she had done so wrong as to deserve this. When he was done, the bishop climbed off Sherry, tossed her a few coins from the bedside table, and told her to get out. Dazed, Sherry got up, took the coins, and shuffled out of the house. Her body was so sore as pain still shot through her and blood ran down her legs. She wanted desperately to run back to her mother and tell her everything. But she really didn't understand what had just happened. So instead she went to school. All day the pain between her legs was raw and burning and she could smell the hot, sweaty scent of the bishop on her for the rest of the day, something that she didn't know at the time, but would come to know in the not-too-distant future, that it was the smell of sex. Ironically, she couldn't bring herself to eat lunch that day. She felt sick to her core. All day, Sherry deliberated over telling her mother she was desperate to tell her, but would her mother believe her over the revered dirty-like bishop? She was shocked that she didn't tell anyone, not her mother, not the teachers. She went to school. She staggered through her classes in a daze. A few days later, the bishop brought a present a pink bicycle with a red bow. But she knew it was being paid to keep the attack silent. From that point on, Sherry changed. Gone was a happy, friendly girl, instead replaced by a zombie, trudging through each day, scared and confused, shying away from her friends and teachers, and late at night, as she cried herself to sleep, she could see the bishop's face hovering over hers, and she could smell his sweat that dripped like a snake's venom onto her skin, mixing with her tears. Doris had noticed the change in her daughter, but instead of asking Sherry what was wrong, she instead scolded the girl for being moody and told her that she was too busy for this childish behaviour. Sherry had hoped that with the silence-inducing gift of a bicycle, that what happened with the bishop was a one-time event. But, a couple of weeks after the first encounter, Doris asked Sherry to take some pies over to her sister's house. Sherry froze and begged her mother not to send her. But this only angered Doris, who shooed her terrified daughter out of the house laden with pies. Sherry bided her time, dawdling and dragging her feet, and rationalising with herself that it was unlikely that the bishop would be there. He looked after 36 churches after all. He usually only visited their church once a month. But when she knocked on her aunt's door, it was once again the bishop's imposing bulk that eclipsed the light in the hallway. He laid his hand firmly on her shoulder, pulling her 
inside. And as he grimaced at her menacingly, she knew two things were definite. Her aunt wasn't home, and it wasn't going to be a one-off event. And it wasn't. The bishop continued to rape Sherry repeatedly from then on. He began to spend more and more time at their church, which elated the congregation whom feigned and fawned over the bishop every time he visited, not being able to believe their luck that their godlike emissary was visiting them so often. All were elated, that is, except for one little eight-year-old girl who knew exactly why the bishop had increased his visits to their church and it wasn't to please the rest of the congregation. Sherry was living in constant fear. At every opportunity she tried to avoid the church and community events but the bishop always managed to find a way to get Sherry on her own. Eventually after a particularly rough encounter with the bishop, Sherry just could not take the pain, fear and torment any longer. She cried all the way home from her aunt's house, and when she stumbled into the apartment, Doris saw her daughter's puffy eyes and tear-stained cheeks. She asked Sherry what was wrong, and through fitful sobs, Sherry told her mother that the bishop had hurt her, kept hurting her, was doing bad things to her. And as Sherry unloaded this heavy burden, her sobs racking her body, she leant forward to embrace her mother, to feel her safety and sanctity, knowing that now she had confessed, her mother would protect her. Liar! Doris reeled at Sherry. Why would she say such things about their beloved bishop? Why would she make up such lies about the holiest of men? She didn't for one second believe their man of God would do something so beneath him. Sherry had been acting funny for weeks and this was obviously a cry for attention. <sighs> Unbelievable. Doris sent Sherry to her room, shouting to her as she went that she would stay there until she stopped spreading lies about their beloved bishop. What a wretched woman. Sherry was utterly destroyed inside. How could a mother not believe her? How could she believe she would lie and lie about something when she didn't even know exactly what had been done to her? The bigger issue, though, was that if her own mother didn't believe her, then no one would. And worst of all, with no one believing her, it meant this was not about to stop any time soon. As she did every night, Sherry cried herself into a fitful sleep and prayed to God for strength and help to get her through this pain. Over the next few days, Doris was cruelly cool and aloof with Sherry performing her parental duties with not an ounce of emotion or care for her bereft and hurting daughter. Sherry didn't want to hate her mother, but she couldn't find any other emotion for her. Your mother was supposed to protect you, and clearly her mother's loyalty to the bishop and the church was greater than her loyalty to her own flesh and blood. 
Ever since the bishop began to rape her, Sherry had lost interest in the church. She knew God, and she did not believe for one second that he would be here with these horrible people. But rumours were starting to swirl within the community. Rumours that angered Doris and gave rise to an even greater indifference towards her daughter. Rumours that Sherry hoped may bring an end to her torment. Rumours that suggested the bishop had been inappropriate with the young girl. But whatever hopes Sherry had that these rumours would bring attention to her plight, her mother quashed them at the next church service. Doris stood up in front of the whole congregation, pointed at Sherry, and told them all that her daughter was a liar. She was evil, and that they should not believe a word that came out of her mouth. And with her mother's damning words and the agreeing murmurs from the congregation, any hope of salvation was fully dashed in the young child. <laughs> Doris certainly won't be winning any Mother of the Year awards. But one person in the congregation wasn't agreeing and nodding with the rest of the crowd. They were listening very intently. Shortly after the incident at the church, in the middle of the night, Sherry was having a fitful sleep, as she did most nights. She often thrashed about in her bed as her subconscious would reenact the bishop's deplorable acts over and over again, and she would wake, startled, scared, and with a scream caught in her throat. As she snuggled back under the blankets, she managed to drift off to sleep again. But once again, she began to dream of the bishop, his hands on her, grabbing her, yanking at her clothing. But this dream, it felt more real than the normal night terrors. It felt physical. It, it felt painful. It felt like the bishop. Sherry's eyes shot open, desperate for the reality of her safe bedroom to dispel her brain of the torturous memories and for her body to stop feeling the physical pain. But as she opened her eyes, instead of seeing the safety of her room, she saw him bearing down on her. He was yanking her nightclothes off her and grabbing her roughly as he undid his buckle belt. How had he got in? How did he know which room was hers? And where was her mother, her stepfather? Sherry was terrified and tried to scream but he covered her mouth, and as she felt the all-too-familiar pain rip through her, her eyes fixed on him, and her brain snapped into the reality of what was actually happening. It wasn't the bishop. It was Deacon Jenkins from the church, another one of the church leaders. And as pain ripped through her body, Tears ran down her cheeks and mingled with the hot, cologne-laden sweat dripping off him, filling her nostrils with an all-too-familiar smell that made her gag. When he was done, he got off her and put his pants back on. He slipped out of the room very quietly, and she heard the back door open and close. She couldn't believe this was happening again. Dear God, why? Why her? A sherry slipped into the bathroom and scrubbed her body raw to get his scent off her. She contemplated telling her mother. But she remembered the beating and the berating she'd taken 
after telling her about the bishop. And if Doris hadn't believed that a church leader could do this to her, Sherry didn't think her mother would believe that a deacon would be capable of such abuse either. And so, Sherry remained silent. The deacon came into her room at least once a week, and once a week Sherry would scrub her skin raw, bathed in the moonlight coming through the bathroom window. As the months passed, and the deacon's nightly visits didn't ease up, she couldn't believe her mother didn't know what was going on. How was she not hearing the doors being opened and closed, the squeaking floorboards as he stole through the house, and the grunts and moans he emitted that were coming from her room? Did she really not hear? Or was she just turning a blind eye? Sherry couldn't help it, but resentment for her mother was growing at a speed that was only outpaced by that of her hatred for the deacon. The abuse was starting to take a serious toll on Sherry's mental health. To dispel her anguished thoughts, she had taken to pulling out clumps of her hair, chewing her nails to the wick, and scratching her skin until it bled. And just as her mother didn't notice the creaking floorboards and doors opening and closing in the middle of the night, Doris also did not notice Sherry's declining physical and mental health. Sherry lived for school. It was the one place where she could escape reality, be someone different, and feel safe. She hated the weekends when there was no school and their lives revolved around church activities. She hated her home, where her mother treated her with indifference and slept soundly through the weekly visits from the deacon. The only upshot out of the hell that was her reality is that since her mother had denounced her in church, calling her a liar to the congregation, the bishop had left her alone. Even at Sherry's young age, she knew why he'd stopped. Because he couldn't afford to have the rumours swirling about him. Even if the community didn't believe them, it was too close to the fire and she knew he was worried about being burnt. And so this went on for a whole year. Until one day. Whilst at school, her teacher announced that the children would be having a physical checkup. When it was Sherry's turn, she obediently went to the office. She was prodded and poked and weighed and prodded some more. And at the end of the checkup, the teacher told Sherry that she needed to go to the principal's office. Her mother was being called to come and collect her. Sherry protested. She wasn't sick. She didn't want to go home. She wanted to stay at school. Her only lifeline. But a protest fell on deaf ears. Her mother arrived at the school and was shown into the principal's office, where Sherry and the principal had been waiting for her and the principal wasted no time in getting to the point. Miss Johnson, we've called you here today because we have some very serious concerns about Sherry. Sherry undertook a checkup today, and after examining her, we believe she is pregnant. In fact, we think she's six months pregnant. Doris protested vehemently, stating that she had no idea her daughter was sexually active. But the principal wasn't buying this and asked Doris. Miss Johnson, perhaps you could tell me how you as Sherry's mother live with her every day 
but yet have no idea of the changes in her body. Doris was indignant in her denial of knowledge. She told the principal that she was going to take Sherry to the doctor and that this was now a family matter. But the principal corrected Doris. No, actually, this was a matter for child welfare and the principal would be reporting Sherry's condition. Whilst this exchange was going on between her mother and the principal, Sherry sat in dumbfounded silence, not because of the severity of the situation she now faced herself in, but because she had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. She'd heard the term pregnant before. That's what happened to Mary when she was blessed with the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. But she did not know why any of this was being applied to her. After all she'd endured in the past year and a half, she knew God had forsaken her and certainly had not blessed her with the Holy Spirit. And besides, Mary was a woman. She, Sherry, was only nine years old. A doctor confirmed Sherry's condition. She was, in fact, seven months pregnant. When they got home, An incensed Doris rounded on her daughter, accusing her of being loose around men, even accusing her of trying to seduce her own stepfather with her flirtatious ways. (laughs) Just to remind you, Sherry is nine, not nineteen. She railed about the shame that Sherry had brought to their home, and most especially, upon her. (laughs) Unbelievable. With each vitriolic word, Sherry's self-esteem plummeted. She couldn't believe her mother found yet another way to blame her. In her mother's eyes, it was always her fault. Always. It was never the men that had done this to her. And as her mother spewed her derisive rhetoric, Sherry was trying to wrap her head around the fact that she was pregnant. For now that the doctor had explained how and why a pregnancy occurs... She definitely understood the term. However, she'd only processed that a baby would come out of her. Her nine-year-old brain had not yet comprehended that she would be a mother. Doris was a non-stop fireball of fury as she paced the living room, trying to figure out how she was going to deal with this situation. She was an assistant mother in the church. She was respected and she was not about to have her reputation tarnished because of her wanton daughter. In the meantime, the principal had stayed true to her words, and child welfare were called, and visited Doris the very next day. Doris locked Sherry in her room and told her not to come out at all during the visit. The child welfare officer probed Doris with abuse allegations, but Doris remained firm that her daughter had had consensual sex, probably with a boy from her class. But when the welfare officer pointed out that the likelihood of a nine-year-old boy getting Sherry pregnant was slim to none, Doris knew she'd been rumbled and things were about to get serious. The welfare officer left, warning that a deeper investigation was going to be undertaken and that serious charges would be assigned if the investigation unearthed rape and abuse. After the welfare officer left, 
Doris called the only person she knew who could help her, the bishop, and he assured her that he could make the problem go away. A couple of weeks later, Doris was in court on charges of neglect and abuse. She was being threatened with having Sherry removed from her care. Sherry was in court with her mother that day, as was the bishop. Sherry couldn't really comprehend what was going on, but she knew that her mother was in trouble, and she got a sense that maybe this man sat up high in his wooden box, maybe, just maybe, be able to do something to stop the nightmare that was her life. The case against Doris was strong, for who would honestly believe that a nine-year-old would be having consensual sex? But... <sighs> the judge dismissed the case, and when the sentencing was passed, Sherry observed a nod pass between the judge and the bishop. Was there anywhere that he did not have influence? Was there no one that could help Sherry if the bishop could manipulate the legal system? Sherry had never felt so desolate as she did that day in the courthouse. For now, she knew she was trapped. No one, no law, no legal system could help her. After the court hearing, it was decided that Sherry would go to live elsewhere until she'd had the child, so that Doris could avoid the embarrassment and shame of having a pregnant nine-year-old daughter. Even though she was seven months pregnant, tall and sundry, Sherry just looked like she'd put on a little weight. Doris needed to get rid of Sherry before the pregnancy became obvious to the community. And so, once again, Doris called her beloved and trusted bishop for help. And he had the perfect solution. Whether Doris realised it or not, which I think she did, Doris was about to send her daughter from one pit of hell into another. Despite being named as the man whom impregnated Sherry, the deacon hadn't stopped stealing into her room every week and raping her, whilst her mother seemed to sleep peacefully throughout each and every occasion. So, when Doris told Sherry she was being sent away for the remainder of her pregnancy, Sherry was elated. An escape from the deacon. Until she found out where she was going. To live with the bishop and his family. Sherry begged and pleaded not to be sent to him, but her pleas fell on deaf ears. Sherry and her condition was too much of an embarrassment for Doris for her to remain. And so... The bishop came to pick Sherry up, and she went from one rapist to the next, one pit of hell to another. And whether the bishop's wife noticed what her husband was doing to their young ward under their roof, she too turned a blind eye. A month into her stay at the bishop's house, Sherry's waters broke. The bishop's wife drove her to the hospital, and as they arrived at the entrance, she told Sherry to get out. And so, Sherry entered the hospital alone. She went through labour alone. She screamed in agony alone. And when her daughter was finally born, she held her new child in her arms alone. She was now ten years old. As soon as Sherry laid eyes on her daughter, she felt an overwhelming surge of protective love 
and anger for cradling her newborn child at just the tender age of ten. She knew her mother must never have felt this all-encompassing love and protection for her, because if she had, she wouldn't have turned a blind eye to what had happened to her. Now that she had given birth, Doris permitted her to return home, under the guise to the rest of the community that they were looking after a relative's child. Even though she loved her child fiercely, Sherry didn't know how to be a mother. She found the whole experience overwhelming. So, when she returned home, she hoped her mother would help her, show her how to do the rudimentary tasks involved in motherhood. But Doris did not. And furthermore, Doris demanded that she return to school. She was ten years old, and a child running around the playground by day a student doing homework in the evening, and a mother feeding and changing nappies throughout the night. Whilst girls her age were playing with dolls, she found herself with a real baby. Sherry didn't know how she got through each and every day, and even though her faith in God was shaken because of her ordeal, she could only put her survival down to his grace. The deacon showed little interest in his daughter, he occasionally came by during the day to have a cuddle with her, but he mostly kept his visits to the nights when he would sneak into Sherry's room and rape her whilst their baby daughter slept beside them. <laughs> yes, once Sherry had recovered from the birth, he resumed raping her. But now he was bolder and more transparent. He no longer snuck into the apartment and tiptoed over the creaky floorboards. No, now... He would just waltz in, closing doors loudly, waking Sherry with a jolt. But yet Doris slept through each and every creaky floorboard and slammed a door. But, of course, Doris couldn't turn a blind eye anymore when Sherry became pregnant for a second time by the deacon. This time, Doris noticed the swelling in her daughter's mid-region before the school did, and a doctor's appointment confirmed her condition. Panicked, Doris called on her trusted bishop again for help. She knew it wouldn't be long before the child welfare officers would be beating on her door again. And while she might have been able to explain away one pregnancy of her nine-year-old daughter under the guise of consensual sex, she knew, even with all the bishop's connections, that he was unlikely to get a judge to turn a blind eye a second time. She, Doris and her daughter's rapist were adults. Her daughter was a minor, and if the truth were to surface, they would face statutory rape charges, neglect charges, and all would face jail time. And her conversation with the bishop only confirmed these fears. He didn't think he would be able to get the charges dropped a second time, if it came to that. But, he assured Doris, that she had nothing to worry about. He had another perfect solution. A few weeks later, Sherry noticed that her mother was busy baking a cake in the kitchen. This was unusual, as her mother mostly baked pies. It looked like it was going to be a big cake given all the icing that her mother was rolling out. Sherry left her mother to her baking and went to her room to do her homework and see to her daughter. Sometime later, Doris appeared in a doorway and presented Sherry with a beautiful dress. 
It was the prettiest dress that Sherry had ever seen, and she was genuinely excited by this rare gift and kindness from her mother. Doris told her to put the dress on, and Sherry happily obliged. She came out to the kitchen to show her dress to her mother, and, noticed, sat on the table the finished cake. It was big. It was the prettiest cake she'd seen, all covered in white icing and little flowers. She also noticed that her mother was dressed up in her nicest clothes, and she wondered if they were having a celebration or a party, which shocked her, as this was not permitted in their religion. Unless there was a wedding, and as Sherry looked at the white cake and the white dress that she herself was wearing, and her mother's preened attire and the small bouquet of flowers that was being pressed into her hands, the realisation dawned on her. There was going to be a party, because there was going to be a wedding. Hers. Before Sherry had time to process what was actually happening to her, she found herself in front of a priest, whom conducted a very quick ceremony, and then they were back at the house, eating cake. An hour ago, she'd been bowled over by the generous gift of a dress from her mother, and now an hour later, she was eating cake as a married woman, married to her rapist, the deacon. And she was only 11 years old and in the sixth grade, and her new husband was 20. So, about now, you're all probably thinking exactly what I thought at this point. How, on God's green earth, has an 11-year-old child been allowed to get married in the state of Florida in the United States? <sighs> well, I'm going to let Sherry tell you in her own words. Oh, yes. Child marriage was against the law in Florida at that time. But there are loopholes in the law. One loophole says child marriage was legal if a parent gave permission for the child to marry. Another loophole is preteen pregnancy. Another loophole for marriage is the judge gives consent. In other words, raping and impregnating a child becomes licensed to go on raping and impregnating a child under the cover of the law. Just so we're clear, at that time, in 1971, the marriage laws in Florida stated that 18-year-olds could marry without parental consent. 16-year-olds could be married with parental consent. However, if a pregnancy is involved, a person can be married at any age, so long as there was parental consent and at the discretion of a judge. And to save face in her community, Doris had given consent and the bishop had used his connections to persuade a judge to sign the marriage certificate. Huh. And Doris, the bishop and the deacon knew that now they had married Sherry off, the child welfare officers would not be knocking on their door again and there would not be a criminal case because that slip of paper signed by a corrupt judge and a callous mother silenced the authorities. And this was Sherry's life. Her marriage to the deacon, 
for that is what he still was, even after the whole community found out about the rape, impregnation and marriage to Sherry, was not a normal one. Well, how could it be, when one member of the marriage is a child? But the deacon had little interest in his children. He would disappear for months at a time, returning home only long enough to impregnate Sherry time and time again. By the time she was 17, Sherry was raising six children. Unbelievable. One child for each year that she'd been married. At the age of 14, Sherry had had to drop out of school in the ninth grade as she could no longer juggle so many children and schoolwork. When the deacon would take off for months on end, he would contribute nothing towards the upkeep of his children and money became very tight. Sherry tried to get work after she quit school at the age of 14, but no one would hire her, as she was too young. <laughs> too young to work, but not too young to get married and raise children. Hmm? As much as she loved her children, she hated her life. Well, she didn't really have a life, did she? It was just a constant treachery with intermittent rapes from her husband and little help and constant belittling from her mother. Oh, she tried to reach out to get help from the authorities, but she was a minor and the law was on her husband's side, not hers. But when she turned 18, the law in Florida now recognised her as an adult and finally she could get out of this situation, out of this hell. But she was broke, living a hand-to-mouth existence of food banks and charity shops. So, she went to legal aid, told them her story and begged them for help to get her out of this marriage. They wrote her a cheque for $75 to pay an attorney to file for divorce. And that very day, she banked the cheque and filed the paperwork. She appealed to the housing authority to rehome her and her children and she was assigned a small, cramped apartment. But it didn't matter how small it was, or how poor they were. Her and her children were finally free, after nine years of rape, abuse, being failed by her mother, the church, her school, and the law into a forced child marriage. She managed to get work as a cleaner, and even with the full responsibility of looking after six children and now working, she went back to school and finished off her education. <laughs> Amazing woman. A 2010 study found that girls in the United States who married before the age of 19 were 50% more likely to drop out of high school than their unmarried counterparts, and only 25% as likely to complete college. And it is well documented that marriage before adulthood often has crushing consequences undermining a girl's access to health, education and economic opportunities. Girls and women in abusive relationships often suffer from low self-esteem and can fall into a self-destructive pattern of attracting more exploitation. And Sherry was no exception. At 19, she married a 37-year-old man. But once the honeymoon period was over, he regularly abused her verbally and physically. She had three more children with a second husband and was 27 when her youngest daughter was born. 
she remained in the loveless marriage, taking regular abuse from her husband for another three decades, until a particularly savage attack finally made Sherry wake up to the misery of her life. That things were not going to change, despite his constant promises. If she was finally going to have a life, her life, she needed to be the one that affected the change. Her children were now adults and had all moved out of the home. So, she filed for divorce and moved to Tallahassee for a fresh start. And it was while Sherry was in Tallahassee, rebuilding her life, that she started counselling. It was through this counselling that Sherry started to fully comprehend the abuse that had taken place in her life. The perpetuating cycle of self-destruction that can occur with abuse victims and victims of child marriage. And once she recognised these signs, she was finally able to break free from the cycle. Through therapy and finding God again through a different church, she had learned to forgive her abusers for what they had done to her. I know, I know, that sounds hard to believe and even more amazing to achieve. But Sherry is nothing if not an amazing woman. And she knew she would not be able to move on with her life if she held on to the anger and hatred she felt towards them. But even when her anger towards her abusers had dissipated after her forgiveness, a lingering anger remained. But this anger was aimed at the law. How the law, the judges, her mother, her church and even her school had failed her. All because of loopholes in the law. So, Sherry started to look into these loopholes. She'd been aware of it for many years, knew that its existence had been the very reason she was legally permitted to be married at 11 years old. But it was now 2012, some 41 years later. So things must surely have been different now. At the time this happened to me, child marriage was legal in every state. Today, at this moment, child marriage is still legal in 47 states. The same loophole exists in many states. Every year, this evil system winks and nods as child brides are married off. This system looks the other way as children are forced to be married to men two, three, and four times their age. This is a system of legal rape. I hate to tell you how big this problem really is. Now, when we think of underage child marriages, we think of developing nations like Afghanistan, Somalia, and India, which the latter ignobly led the world with almost 27 million child marriages in 2017. Few of us perceive America as a land where child marriage occurs, but it does. And as Sherry has just stated, it is legal in most states. Sherry began to look into these loopholes in 2012, and as a mother, she felt she had a duty to protect her children, all children, from what had happened to her. In 2012, I set up a foundation to help abused children. We established a hotline that they can call to get help. 
are just someone to talk to. It was therapy for me. The hotline was soon flooded with calls and Sherry felt that she had finally found a purpose. Helping children. She also started to give talks at local churches and community centres about her experience, about the loophole in the law, to bring awareness of this flaw in the legal system. But after each talk that she gave, women were coming up to her afterwards. It happened to me. It happened to me. It happened to me. It happened to me. They shared their experiences of how too they were raped, became pregnant and forced to marry their abuser to hide the family shame, to become trapped in the loophole in the law. And as rewarding as the hotline was, and as cathartic as the public talks about her experience were, there was a clear pattern of abuse and rape hiding behind these loopholes in the law. And Sherry felt like she needed to do something about it. She needed to do more. She had to stop the legal system from turning a blind eye. And so, in 2013, she went to the state capitol and began knocking on the doors of all the state leaders, lawmakers and law changers. She told them her story. She told them of all the other people that had told her of their stories. And she asked them for help to change the law. But no one wanted to help. But still, Sherry kept beating on doors, bombarding people with emails and phone calls. And finally... Finally, a woman in the House representative said, yes, I will sponsor your bill. When I got her support, the tears rolled down my cheek. And that woman was Representative Cynthia Stafford. Between Stafford and Sherry, they launched a mass media campaign to support their bill. And given the severity of Sherry's story, the media were quick to pick up on the bill and the story. Lawmakers in Florida are considering a bill that would make their state the first to ban marriages for children, anyone under 18. The woman behind this campaign was forced to marry before she was a teenager. I'm 11 years old. How do I understand and know what marriage is about? I feel the whole, the whole system failed me. It wasn't just one person, and it wasn't just one uh, source. Johnson is now 58 and has spent the last five years trying to get Florida lawmakers to close what she calls loopholes in the law that put minors in marriages. Currently, no state bans marriage before the age of 18. It's estimated nearly a quarter million minors were married in the U.S. from 2000 to 2015. The majority girls married to adult men, often with significant age differences. The Florida Senate unanimously approved the child marriage ban, but it must also clear the House. So, as we've just heard, the bill that was to ban all marriages in the state of Florida for under 18-year-olds was passed in the Senate. But in order to become law, it needed to be passed in the House. And it didn't pass. <laughs> the bill was dead. I was crushed. I felt like the weight of the world was sitting on my chest. But the next year, I came back to try again. My biker in the house did not want to sponsor the bill again. Her feelings were, we tried, we lost. 
Our bill was not a winner. So she was moving on to other things. <laughs> You've got to admire Sherry's unwavering determination. So what was she to do now? Well, she began banging on every door in the state capital again. If it worked the first time, maybe it could work the second time. But it didn't. She could not drum up any support from anyone. And it seemed all was at a loss, and her bill really was dead. And just as Sherry was about to give up, something remarkable happened. Yes, the bill hadn't passed in the House, but it had garnered much media attention. Attention that was not just being confined to the state of Florida. In fact, the media story had been aired in many states, and... In the state of New Jersey, one woman was taking a great deal of interest in Sherry's story. So I am Freddie Reese. I was 19 when my family arranged my marriage to a stranger. I was trapped in that marriage for 15 years before I managed to escape. She founded Unchained at Last, a nonprofit that helps women and girls escape forced marriages. Women and girls who reach out to Unchained at Last come from nearly every community that you can think of. Uh, they're from every major religion and a lot of minor religions as well as secular backgrounds. Really what they have in common is that they tend to be women and that the perpetrators in the forced marriage tend to be their own parents, their own family. So as you've just heard, Frady was also a victim of child marriage and she'd set up Unchained at Last to bring support to victims and awareness of the need for a change in the law. But, despite Frady being contacted by people all over the country in support of her cause, she had not been able to get a lawmaker to put her cause into a bill. And even though Sherry's bill had died, Sherry had gotten further in trying to change the law than anyone else had. So Frady reached out to Sherry, and offered to create a media campaign to boost her quest. And, of course, Sherry jumped at the chance. She was back in the game. Unable to advocate for themselves, children in forced marriages can suffer physically, mentally, and emotionally. Sherry, who is now almost 60, still struggles to come to terms with her stolen childhood. I'm still dealing with the aftereffects uh, having a shaky foundation to start my life off with to the point right now, I'm still dealing with that. She wants to make sure what happened to her doesn't happen to anybody else, starting with children in her home state, Florida. While I'm advocating a bill for children not to be able to be married until the age of 18, I want to make sure that the public knows that it's very important for this bill to pass because we're protecting our children. I've often heard that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, this is part of the village. We're raising these children. We're protecting these children. The campaign was distributed to every major media outlet in Florida and to every senator, the governor, representatives and congresspeople. And... Someone finally took notice. One, Senator Elizabeth Benequisto. In fact, she was already investigating two other cases that had been brought to her attention. But Sherry's story? Well, it reduced her to tears. 
Never had she heard such an horrific account of blatant misuse of the law in order to protect the guilty, in order to perpetuate the crimes against the victim. Benequisto managed to drum up support and co-sponsorship for the bill from Senator Lauren Book, which only strengthened the bill passing in the House and the Senate. She also appealed to the media to help drum up support. State Senator Elizabeth Benequisto is sponsoring a bill that would ban marriage licenses for anyone under 18. No exceptions. As long as there are the numbers of children being forced into marriages with folks who otherwise would be categorized as um, sexual predators or sexual offenders, you know you have to take a stand against that. And on the 31st of January, 2018, Benequisto presented her bill to the Senate, and the House bill was presented by Representative Jeanette Nunes. Benequisto invited Sherry to the Senate to watch in the gallery as votes were cast. And now Florida lawmakers are finally doing their part. Just five miles away from where Sherry Johnson lives in Tallahassee, two different bills are making their way through the Florida legislature, which would for the first time not only end child marriage, but would make Florida the first in the country to do it. And you'll be pleased to hear that the Senate voted unanimously in favour of the bill to ban anyone from getting married under the age of 18 for any reason. A whoop went up through the room and Sherry sat in the gallery, bent her head and wept. Now, the bill just had to get through the house and on the 1st of February 2018, the bill went before the House. Sherry, Benequisto and Book paced and waited for the results. And... And tonight that stand has hit a roadblock. State lawmakers arguing over key differences. The Senate bill bans child marriage for anyone under 18, no exceptions. But the House version includes an exception for 16-year-olds who are pregnant and whose partners are no more than two years older. <sighs> the bill had to be amended to include a caveat that children aged 17 and up could get married if there was a pregnancy, parental consent, and there was no more than a two-year age gap between the couple. Sherry was deflated, but adamant that she wanted to maintain the original bill and she took to the media to drum up support. But Benequisto and Book pointed out to Sherry that with or without the amendment, the bill may still not pass the House. But if the House had seen fit to change the bill, it meant that the revised version had a much higher chance of passing. If Sherry demanded to retain the original bill, it would most likely not pass and would die a death just like it had the first time. And so, Sherry conceded and agreed to the amended bill. However, any bill that has an amendment needs to be debated and discussed before it can be presented to the House. And so Sherry, Benequisto and Book waited. And then... And as of July 1st of this year, our bill became Florida law. Almost every bill gets changed on the way to becoming a law. That happened to our bill, too. We wanted the law to say that you must be 18 to get married, period. But the lawmakers changed the legal marriage to 17. Florida law is not perfect. But it is a giant step in the right direction. 
We have more work to do. It is time to enforce the law. But we will not stop there in Florida. We're reaching out across the country. <sighs> Amazing woman. I'm quite sure she won't stop until she's changed the law in all 50 states. Sherry's bill came into effect in July 2018. When the Florida legislature passed the child marriage laws, other states began to stand up and take notice, realising that they could no longer turn a blind eye. The Florida legislature for the child marriage bill became a template for other states whom began to push their bill through the senates and houses. Sherry's law was causing a ripple effect throughout the United States. Following on from Florida, Delaware became the first state in the country to raise the minimum age of marriage to 18, without exception, in 2018, effectively banning child marriage altogether. New Jersey followed suit soon after. Whilst the general public in America often assumes that child marriage is an issue that doesn't pertain to their country, it is actually widespread across the country today. As we heard in a news clip earlier, between 2000 and 2015, over 200,000 minors, 87% of which were girls, were married in the USA. To put this into numbers that you can relate more to, this equates to 40 children that are married each day in the United States. Hmm. But, thanks to Sherry's ripple effect law, the number of children married each year in the US since 2018 has been decreasing. But it will not reach zero until every state passes laws to end child marriage. However, at the point of airing this podcast, child marriage involving similar loopholes that entrap Sherry still remains legal in 47 states today. But as we're all aware, child marriage is not limited to the United States. It is actually a prolific global problem. Across cultures, various factors contribute to the high prevalence of child marriage. Drivers include gender inequality, cultural tradition, poverty, shame-hiding and economic and social insecurity. Together, these factors fuel and sustain high rates of the practice worldwide. According to UNICEF, 15 million girls are married globally before their 18th birthday every year, which amounts to approximately 41,000 child brides per day across the world. Now, the rate of child marriage is dropping globally, but population increases mean the numbers could potentially increase in years to come. Child marriage occurs in every region, in every country, on every continent. And only when you, me, we, are as strong, vocal and forthright as Sherry Yvonne Johnson will we collectively speak loud enough to change the laws in our respective countries. Will you speak out? I hope you liked today's story, Sherry's story. An horrific case of rape and abuse covered up by loopholes in the law that protected the rapist and not the victim. But the victim fought back and became instrumental in changing a law not only in her state but also 
influence state laws throughout the country. Apologies that this has been a long one, but it's another story that spans half a century. Much of today's story came from Sherry's book called Forgiving the Unforgivable. It is probably one of the most harrowing books I've ever read. I've only covered certain aspects of Sherry's life in today's story, the parts that fit the narrative in order to change the law. But trust me, Sherry's life was so, so much worse than I have portrayed today. And yes, I know that's hard to believe, but it was. If you want to know more, stick around to hear the darker side. Despite how harrowing Sherry's book was to read, it is an exceptional first count experience of the cause and effects of child marriage and a lesson to us all to not turn a blind eye. I'd just like to thank my college friend, Tenille Irish, for lending her voice to today's podcast and to my other college friend for lending his voice. He'd prefer to remain anonymous. But to both of you, I'd just like to say thank you so, so much for your help and support. And MTSND. <laughs> Sorry, another inside anecdote. I'd also like to make a different sort of thanks this week. Receiving rates and reviews is wonderful in helping my little podcast grow. Please rate and review. But actual critical feedback and interaction from you, the audience, is so rewarding and encouraging. So, I want to thank someone who found me in the early days when my audio was awful, of which I am working to replace, but has stayed along for the journey. On every single episode, this person has offered their feedback, and thank goodness, so far, it has been positive. But they really have done so much to keep this fledgling podcaster motivated. So I'd like to thank Dave1670 on Instagram. Thank you and drive safely, my friend. And so we're now at that point in the week where I'm about to utterly destroy and probably insult some new countries to the podcast. As always, I just can't tell you enough how much it means to me that my little podcast is reaching the ears of countries I've only ever dreamed of visiting. So, thank you to you all for sharing, posting and reviewing, because this podcast wouldn't reach far-flung ears without that kind of support. And so, on to the desecration. This week, I'd like to thank India, Namaste Al Shukriya, and Jamaica, Wagwan and thank you. And Myanmar, Mingalaba ni Jesu Timbate. I just demolished them, didn't I? Deepest apologies. But I think, you know, I'm trying my best. So with that said, come join me on Facebook or Instagram. I'd love to have you along for the ride. The Facebook group is a private group, so none of your messages will show in your feed. Come tell me what you think. Love to hear from you. So, until next time, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. Hello, are you still there? 
Yes, another already long episode made even longer by a darker side. But, would you have preferred a two-parter? No, I thought not. Do you remember how I said it in the last darker side, after episode 10, Sticks and Stones, that that episode had taken two months to write, and that the stories of online abuse had been the hardest episode to write? Yeah, I lied. This one, boy, this one has taken its toll on me. I read Sherry's book back in October of 2020, and I was so motivated and moved by her story that I absolutely knew I had to cover it, especially as the law she managed to change went on to having such huge ripple effects throughout the USA. But when it actually came to writing about her ordeal, I tell you, I've struggled. As mentioned in the episode already, I try to cover crime at the top of the story so that I can focus on the road to retribution for the rest of the episode. But Sherry's abuse was so horrific and prolific that it permeated every inch of the story. So I had to go into much, much more detail than I usually do. But in today's episode, I've shared only a fraction of the abuse that she endured. And if you want to hear the rest, keep that play button going. If not, pause now, because I'm telling you, what she endured will make you feel sick to your stomach. It did me. Okay, are you still there? Okay, here we go. The church that Sherry belonged to, headed up and heralded by the so-called living deity, Bishop Emerson? Well, there was an active paedophile ring within the church, which was headed up by that utter putrescent pissant, the bishop. Once a bishop had had his fun with Sherry, he allowed other leaders to take part. And the first person who raped Sherry after the bishop? It was her very own stepfather. <laughs> he would come to Sherry's bedroom whenever his wife Doris was out. He had even cut out holes in the wall that connected his and his wife's bedroom with the bathroom, and he would watch Sherry bathing. He raped her repeatedly for months until Sherry built up the courage to tell her mother. Oh, she was terrified to tell her mother after what had happened when she told her about the bishop's abuse. But amazingly, this time, mother of the year, not Doris, believed her. So, what did Doris do? Did she kick him out? Nope. He slept on the couch for one night and then was let back into the marital bed as though nothing had happened. He did, however, have an attack of guilt and shame and so called a meeting with the church leaders, the bishop being one of them, and he confessed. He needed to get the guilt off his shoulders. It was weighing so heavily on his heart. Oh, bless... He must have felt so much better after that. The church leaders decided to sweep the incident under the carpet, but in order to save face, as they knew community gossip was swelling, they said that he had to step down from his position as pastor for two years. That's it. No charges, 
no legal action. Just step down from your position, but keep staying in the same apartment we provide you as part of the church and keep living with the child you raped. Ugh. Ugh. Hmm. But the newly appointed deacon of the church, Myron, had been part of the leaders' group that had heard David Johnson's confession, and he already had had his eye on the eight-year-old Sherry. Encouraged by the bishop, the deacon began sneaking into the Johnson household to rape Sherry. He had been given a key by a church member. <laughs> it was obviously the deacon's abuse that led to Sherry getting pregnant and, ultimately, having to marry her rapist. And, as we know, it was the bishop that made the marriage happen, which I can tell you now, in the darker side, was construed not to protect Doris from community shame, but to exonerate himself, the bishop, from any charges he should come under from the law into his part in the rape and abuse of a child. And he calls himself a man of God. <laughs> More like Lucifer reincarnated. I say, called himself, because he died a rather sudden and awful death. He was stood giving a sermon in one of his churches and he suddenly collapsed, dead. He'd had a massive heart attack. The post-mortem revealed that the heart attack had been so prolific that his heart had literally exploded. There was only 20% of his heart left. Good. Don't let the door kick you on the way out to hell. As for Doris, I couldn't find any information on her. But Sherry did distance herself from her mother after she left the apartment and the church. I can only imagine, after all these years, that Doris is dead. I hope she's rotting in hell too. As we know from today's story, years after Sherry managed to get out of her abusive lifestyle, she had begun talking at schools, churches and community centres, spreading her story and campaigning for change. One night... A woman accidentally happened to hear Sherry at a school talk. This woman was on the verge of taking her own life due to quite similar circumstances that Sherry had endured. It was Sherry's motivational speech that stopped her from taking her own life. Knowing that she wasn't alone, that help was out there, that someone was trying to enact change to stop this from happening. And this woman would go on to save many, many more people in a terrorist attack. But, uh, you are going to have to read Sherry's book if you want to know why. Sorry, but Sherry deserves that plug. And I think now you can understand why I found this week's episode so hard to write. It has literally given me nightmares to write, but at the end of the day, Sherry's story needed to be told, it needed to be voiced, so that you, me, we, can speak out against child marriage and child abuse. So, be loud, be vocal, talk to your local lawmakers, make this change happen in your country. And on that note, stay safe, stay alert. Sue's. This really is over and out. <laughs>